0: Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds Podcast, brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders in fundraising philanthropy. I'm your host, Jay Frost. John Stettner has spent decades making dreams come true. His career has taken him from the hospital hallways, to theater stages, to longtime leadership of Make-A-Wish International, and today, bringing his insights to clients through the Cagney Company. We caught up with John as he prepared to hit the road for the first time since the beginning of the pandemic, and he shared the lessons he has taken from these very unusual times. John, tell me a little bit about your, your origin story. Where are
1: you from? Originally from Regina, Saskatchewan in Canada, though I am an American citizen and uh, uh, I'm also a Canadian. So, so how uh, does that work exactly? That you're <laughs> well. Uh, doing so I um, I uh, went down to the states very early in my life when I was um, uh, in my early twenties. I was traveling with uh, the Royal Winnipeg Ballet Company mm-hmm. um, as a technical director and um, met my wife um, and later went to the university of arizona uh, became a u.s citizen uh, lived mostly in canada but uh, uh, also became a u.s citizen as well and i've worked back and forth between the two countries and spent the, the last 13 years in the united states
0: but saskatchewan in a sense is is home
1: well it it was where i was born my home really is in vancouver Uh, In that area there and for the last 20 some years uh, prior to being down in the States, yeah. And your parents? Parents passed away, uh, but living in, uh, they were living in Saskatchewan. And um, uh, my father, uh, my grandfather on my father's side came from Austria and my uh, grandparents from my mother's side came from Romania. They came to Saskatchewan to homestead back in the early 1900s, and that was when they were giving away land for free as long as you uh, tilled it and grew some crops and put some buildings on the land.
0: The uh, the land rush in Canada.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: And was your family on that same land for a long time?
1: Uh, yeah, my uh, my grandfather's passed them down to usually oldest sons as was i think um in those days almost obligatory <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh yeah so they've uh, and they continue to have the the land today uh it's in held in with my grand great grandsons and and grandsons
0: it's pretty extraordinary that um there's that attachment to the land like that uh, especially with so many things that have changed. And it sounds like your life has been pretty mobile. I know we'll talk about that when we talk about your work, but you skirted so quickly past how you met your wife that I have to ask you about that. Was she a member of the ballet?
1: No, she was actually the, a backstage hostess mm-hmm. at Gamage Auditorium at ASU where she was going to school. And I was uh, there with the Royal Winnipeg Ballet. We met, and um, I uh, I fell in love instantly, and um, asked her to come up to Canada to uh, to come there for uh, Christmas. And she did, and she met my family, and then um, less than a year later, we were we were married. And yeah.
0: And. Now you've been uh, again in Canada, but also I know traveling quite a bit for work over the years. Um, one of the things that so fascinates me about your uh, your professional arc is that there's been so much that's really with organizations that I often think of as direct service that you're working <laughs> to help people, whether they they need healthcare directly or granting wishes, lots of different things. How did that journey of working in the nonprofit sector begin for you? How did you go from, again, uh, the world of the Winnipeg ballet to, to working in, in that kind of work?
1: Well, uh, there's that old maxim that they keep raising you to a level where you become incompetent. I started off as a you know, lighting uh, and working in the lighting field. technical direction I had a Canada Council grant that taught me technical direction lighting design and I actually arts administration as well Mm -hmm. as I grew through the organization finally became the assistant general manager and then finally the general manager for a few months while the uh, the general manager was sick I realized I didn't have the skill set to really manage a company from uh, and, and it was a large company Uh, In those days, one of the larger companies in ballet companies in North America. So I went off and decided to undertake an MBA at the University of British Columbia. And that changed my arc of my career, where instead of uh, getting right back into the arts, actually, I got into um, a um, hospital foundation as the executive director. And fundraising became um, you know what I spent most of my time doing and managing uh, staff and also the volunteers for the hospital because we we managed uh, volunteers for the uh, the day program uh, and the health programs so um, yeah I, so I I you know did something totally different and uh, changed my life and from there I uh, I uh, started to get back interested in the arts and it was an arc of you know connections it's that six degrees of separation i was running a um, a arts organization it was the 19th largest arts organization in canada when i started by the time i got uh, uh finished with it we were the second largest repertory theater in mm. canada we we um bought a theater opened up uh, uh, you know put together a capital campaign for 10 million bucks and we ended up uh, having three theaters in vancouver and became the uh, the largest theater company there of course and then uh, a very large theater company across canada pushed out tours just did a lot of wonderful things and it just so happened that the president or the chair of the board of of uh, the arts club was uh, married to uh, the vice president of uh, one of the Variety, the children's charity. And they saw what I had done at um, the arts club. And so they asked if I could change what was happening at Variety, the children's charity, which was across Canada, we had the very large telethon that was televised, but it was inside of a theater. So it was very expensive. And so what we did is, uh, is I took the, uh, the entire, rebranding of it and worked with uh, some professionals and we put it into a tv studio and um uh you know we had professionals such as uh sarah mclaughlin brian adams uh, uh, we actually just got their their performance tapes they donated them to us and we put them on the air, and then we had them do some small vignettes for us, you know, someone coming on and saying, hey, support Variety, the children's charity, because it'll make a difference. And so by just changing the format, instead of being live and having a little run across the stage, people have to manage a stage for 23 hours. We did it in the studio. We saved about $400,000, but the reach we got uh, literally more than doubled the amount of money that we got in and so that changed it for me with variety we quickly started to grow and became a very very large organization uh getting involved with uh with hospitals and and you know the whole lottery field that was happening back in those days up in canada and i became then the sort of the managing director of canada for variety
0: but for those who don't know variety what what is the work all about
1: well, interestingly enough, it's all about children, but it's different in, um, in different um, places. So for example, in the States, uh, variety would be a fair amount would, was for mobility, helping children who needed mobility. And so um, things like uh, special vans, special wheelchairs, things like that. In Canada for us, Uh, Variety was more about um, equipment that the healthcare program here uh, in Canada, which is a socialized program, uh, might not pay for. Like, for example, a insulin pump that a child could have and, and wear with them all the time. And so we'd pay for things like that or for children to have specific special surgeries that might, in fact, not be had in Canada and were available in the U.S. So, things like that. Make sense?
0: Yes. In fact, it sort of reminds me of Shriners, but I know the business model is very different. Yeah, Um, exactly. And as you were reaching out to all these stars, I know it's a part of what you've done now for a long time, being able to tie together people's uh, visibility with the causes that matter to them. How did you find that to be? Successful. How did you conduct that outreach? Why did that uh, resonate for them?
1: Um, well, you know, getting involved in your own community is really important, and just helping. I mean, you see this throughout the charitable sector, for example. You know, where you've got uh, a lot of stars, for example, celebrities have their own foundations, their own charities. They they want to give back as well, and so uh, it you know it didn't take much to because I'd been in the arts world. And, and we had, you know, when you contract for theaters or actors, um, you have to go through, you know, the, the entire process of working with their agents or their managers. And so that was just a, an add on for me as I moved it over to uh, a variety of the children's charity. So we'd look for um, the kind of uh, stars, entertainment celebrities that we needed to for the, uh, for the telephone every year. And, um, and it was just a matter of going out and, you know, sending off letters, of course, first to the agents and then asking if they'd be interested in helping. And, you know, that's the nice thing about, um, many of those canadian stars that i just mentioned like sarah mclaughlin brian adams uh, michael blubley michael blubley for example i would worked with at the arts club theater where i was the general manager prior to variety we gave him his first job with red rock diner and uh, you know so uh, he actually had performed at the telethon years ago when he was a young boy so he was uh, you know interested in 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 being able to be part of uh, of the Vancouver scene, the community and helping and giving back. Mm. So
0: this is all prior to the rise of the influencers too. So.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> uh, it, it was very much the, as you said, write a letter and reach out and hope for the best, but it sounds like you were able to um, capture their interest and they were willing to, to help. It must've been kind of fun for you too. You, you have all this work that you've done, with the arts straight through um I wonder did you ever find your way onto the stage yourself
1: well interestingly enough I did Uh, but um only for fun so for example with the Royal Winnipeg Ballet I did appear on stage um uh, in a couple of very very large ballets where they have you know um sort of window dressing the dancers walk on they walk around so i did that for 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 fun but other than that with the exception of having performed in a band for years when i was younger that's how i paid for my way through university and uh, um, having fun is i used to play weekend dances i played uh, uh, piano organ and guitar and sang. so we we'd go out and we'd play these uh, these weekend dances and make make some cash and that's how I um, was able to pay for some things and so that was of my only you know being on stage sort of a.
0: Are you playing anymore?
1: Oh yeah I still continue to play but uh, uh, not in front of people. I I used to I used to play for you know when I was uh, in university I played for the Campus Christian Center. I was also the lead musician for the 515 Mass at the Newman Center. I, I played for all the churches, actually. I led the choirs and, uh, and got uh, university students involved in singing. You know, it was uh, one of the things I really enjoyed is just getting people together and just singing your hearts out.
0: So I, I did want to ask you, as you uh, went through that process of engaging with people and bringing them into the cause, um, I, I again I know that it was it must have been a lot of fun, but it was also highly successful. Um, is there something you brought from not just your your studies as a, as a MBA, but also your work um, including backstage that you were able to take and apply to fundraising? How did how did that work prepare you to do the work you do?
1: Well, it, what did? It- I think what prepared me the most was just, uh, you know, family and the background that I came from, um, you know, pretty humble beginnings. Uh, I, you know, I, I grew up with, uh, with, you know, actually without running water for the first five years of my life. <laughs> so it was uh, um, just a lot about recognizing relationship and really having honest and authentic conversations. Also, you know, if anything I've learned, and it's something that I used to tell my, my team at the, where I worked, uh, the, all the places where I worked, if we're gonna fail, let's fail quickly and move on because you learn a lot from mistakes. So you know, it, and I certainly was fortunate to be fairly successful, but you know, it comes through making mistakes and learning from them and moving on.
0: You, again, jumped right by <laughs> you were growing up in a house without running water. Tell us more about those early years.
1: Well, those early years were just, you know, we, uh, in, you know, Canada at that point was probably, I'm guessing, 20 years behind the United States back in the 50s. And uh, so so when I grew up, uh, you know, we had... Uh, Uh, water in the basement. was like, it was a cistern. You pumped it with a pump. Uh, And um, you know, you, uh, you had an out, you had an outhouse. I mean, I can remember when we first uh, uh, got our, our first house with the, with the toilet, Uh, there were my three brothers and I, Um, I had another brother, but he was a baby at the time. And we sat around and we flushed the toilet (laughs) Just to see it all go down. <laughs> so it was, uh, you know, it it was those sort of humble beginnings of uh, of not having a lot. And my dad actually started out as a as a caretaker, a milkman. He did whatever he could to get work uh, when he wasn't working on the farm because they moved from the farm because of the. Um, You know, looking for better opportunity. And um, so that was, uh, uh, he then got this very fortunate job of being the caretaker at the university theater. Within two years, he was the stage manager of that theater. And he'd bring in some of his sons, a couple of us, to help him on stage get ready for some of the shows. And that's how we learned theater. And then when I was 18, uh, I was able to get a Canada Council grant to study the lighting design and so forth. And so I studied actually at uh, Metropolitan Opera in New York, the Grand Ballet Canadien, National Ballet of Canada, and, uh, um, and with the Royal Winnipeg Ballet. And so that's how I sort of got that first opportunity just to, to grow myself.
0: And not to be too metaphorical about it, but you were bringing light to others in all those <laughs> stages, which is kind of what you were doing at Variety. And then I guess what you also ultimately did with something that's been a huge chunk of your career, and that's with Make-A-Wish. Can you talk about how you found your way to Make-A-Wish and uh, why you chose
1: to to take that on? Uh, well, you know, for me, um, it all came through the very fortunate uh, prospect of being headhunted. And um, someone had called me from a headhunting firm to say, hey, there's this position. Are you interested? And I said, sure, I'd love to, to take a look at it. And I did. And I, the important thing was, as I met the people who were in the hiring process, which was the chair of the board and a couple of the board members. And they were from all over the world. And I had already traveled all over the world with the Royal Winnipeg Ballet to about 30 countries. So it was um, it was an opportunity to really sort of go across culture. And in that opportunity of finding out more about Make-A-Wish, I made sure that I I checked it out. I went to. um, to be quite candid with you, I went down to the States to visit a friend of mine uh, who I went to school with at the University of Arizona and um, <clears throat> meet a wish child for the first time. I just wanted to see everything that I could find out about Make-A-Wish. And, and once I did, I felt like it was a really great organization that made a difference in the world. And, you know, that's the reason why I, um, I am who I am and why I got involved in, and stayed in not-for-profit work. Um, certainly, when you get out of the MBA program, you're you're sort of uh, focused on other things, you know, whether it's uh, finance or or you know um, business entrepreneurial. But I I really wanted to stay in the uh, not for profit sector, so that's I I took the job with Make a Wish, and uh, boy, I was the an exciting ride. We grew the organization from twenty. Four twenty-five uh, countries up to around fifty-two, and we just had a lot of fun, fun in doing that. And I spent a lot more time on other areas besides uh, just fundraising. A lot of managing and especially governance. So I, I got certified in governance because you know the one thing I learned from my experience with other organizations is that having a great board is so. Difficult. You have to really work at it. So often we're we're concerned about quantity or the numbers instead of really worried more about the quality of those board members and that they really, really, really care about the organization. Because when they do, they become advocates and they will help you move that organization forward. And again, that all comes back to where we started with, I think it's just about relationships building relationships.
0: Tell us though about the work itself with Make-A-Wish. You said that you went down and you visited one of the wish kids, and which I've never heard those expressions, which is pretty amazing. Tell us about that experience. You you don't have to reveal who the child is, but what was the wish and what impact did it have on you to go and visit and and see that wish fulfilled?
1: Well, uh, before I took the job, I was, you know, I had, Done my research it, again. It it you uh, it gave me the basics of what Make a Wish was, but I really wanted to understand what sort of made them tick. So, a friend of mine down in in Washington just happened to be um, a friend of a young girl who had um, who had had cancer and had had a wish. So I had a chance to meet with her and just to understand the difference that the wish made for her, and the difference that it made was that. Um, once she was going through the wish process, she was much more willing to follow the medical regimen that was required for her to to um, help beat her, her cancer. And um, there was a, a positivism about her, you know, that she talked about that because of her wish and her wish was actually to go to Italy with her best friend, which was um, You know, a really cool experience. But the fact that she was able to do it and that it impacted the way that she healed said to me that Make a Wish uh, had some efficacy. And since then, of course, uh, we've had some research that's been done. uh, A um, research scientist out of actually out of Harvard, but from Israel, who uh, did a psychological study to show that children with wishes. were more likely to get better um had a better attitude um about going through their 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 illness and um were more willing to again follow the medical regimen required and just had a much more positive attitude so um you know in my opportunity to meet this young lady i realized that uh, it was a a really good program efficacious and so i said yes to the position and then i never looked back from there it was really growing an organization it was really about business in one sense trying to grow more into uh you know countries that we weren't in from the uae which is a monarchy to uh to uh, uh, China, which uh, is a communist country and the challenges that we had there in getting started. So it's, um, it was you know, a lot of very interesting uh, opportunities and just interesting business practices that we had to employ to, to really you know, grow the organization. And especially and, in places where the, where fundraising, for example, is not the norm. I mean, in the, the United States is the most generous, the richest nation in the world. Uh, they sort of get the whole idea of, uh, of you know, giving back. And plus, there's a you know, there's tax incentives and things like that. In some of these places, um, there's no such thing. You know, and again, it, it goes back to the real meaning of charity, which is, is that you're doing it because you really care about that cause, about that mission. And, and that's where I've realized in terms of governance that having board members who really, really care about the mission is so much more important than the number of board members that you have.
0: So looking at the, the time you were there, what, what wish was the hardest to grant?
1: well uh, the child who wanted to go to the moon <laughs> probably um, mm-hmm. though there are some very good videos of some of the things that were done to help that child go to the moon in terms of making them feel like they had gone to the moon you know sending them off to school in, in, in for NASA I had camps for example uh, for kids and things like that so uh, but that was probably the more difficult ones I mean there are some some other ones that, you know, of course, um, Make-A-Wish just would not do. Uh, they, they did, you know, once and then they decided, well, we all decided that those were inappropriate wishes, things like hunting and, and so forth. We decided to stay away from. So, you know, mm-hmm. we made some yeah. of those decisions that are, um, uh, for some, might not be difficult decisions. Uh, but for for us it was and and but we decided that we wanted to err on a in a different way
0: what about the most satisfying wish do you does something stand out as a, a time when you felt personally the most gratified because of the
1: work that the organization had done I guess the most gratifying wish Wishes for me is sort of um, when I get the opportunity to speak with children after their wish and they talk about the difference that it's made for them. But when it comes down to what most of us say and make a wish, our best wish, it's the next wish.
0: Well, I, I know what you mean, but you must have thought about this a lot while you were there because part of this is administrative. You were making sure that everything worked so these, these wishes could be granted. But you must have been a kid at heart thinking about what wish would you make. So what, what was that? What was that wish you would have asked for?
1: Boy, that's a good question, Jay.
0: Or maybe what would you ask for now?
1: You know, I think that um, if I had the opportunity for a wish today it would probably be something to do with family, getting together, being all in one place. You know, and we've had a lot of those wishes and they really are wonderful wishes where um, the family, you know, goes on a trip, for example, which for um, westerners seems to be one of the more prevalent wishes so for example in the united states disney for example is almost 50 percent of the wishes uh where in europe for example it's more like wow. uh i think around 12 or 13 percent possibly might be a little higher now well, so, uh,
0: so what's their biggest one it's not disney clearly what what is it <laughs>
1: Well, it's a whole bunch of other things, things like, you know, the more you go to countries that are less um, less developed, let's say, uh, it's more about some of the essentials. So when you go to places like Pakistan and, and India, you know, it's more about, about necessities like, you know, parachutes, basketball shoes. Um, You know, and so what we have to do there is you just can't give out, you know, basketball shoes. You got to make it into experience, into an experience, into something that really changes them. So it's about all of the things around that wish that make it into something that is life-changing and and dynamic. Um, You know, we had one child who asked for a fridge for his mom so she didn't have to walk so far to get his chemotherapy drugs. So that uh, they could wow. stay in the fridge. I mean, that to me was a that was one of those wishes where you 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 get tears in your eyes and you cry because of just you know that young boy was thinking about his mom, and she, he just didn't want her walking to have to go all the way there when they could have gotten enough of the of the drug that he needed and put it into a fridge. I mean, crazy wish, but. Huh? Um so but you have to take those wishes and you have to work around them and turn them into something. So there's a party, there's a there's a build-up. it's about this entire process of 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 getting them ready for their wish and and stoking their desire and their energy so that their mind isn't on their sickness, their mind is on getting their wish and organizing it and putting it all together. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it, it does. It- causes me to wonder how easy or difficult it was then to go out and talk to others who hadn't been through those experiences and to make them real for them and to invite them to participate in it, to underwrite those wishes. What what was the most challenging part um, from the fundraising perspective of making these wishes come true?
1: Well, we figured out very early, it's all about telling the story, right? It's about making sure that there's a hero in that story and that hero needs to be the donor. And so we worked very hard as we spoke to potential donors to let them know that, you know what, we couldn't do this without them and that they were making the difference. We weren't. did the work to set the wish up, but without their help, without their funds, without the volunteers, because around the world, 40,000 uh, volunteers grant wishes for Make-A-Wish. It's, it's those people that make the difference. And, and um, so, so that's what the conversation was always about, is telling a story that was so impactful that people would get involved, and it would engage their, obviously, their emotions, but engaging their intellect so that they really felt that this organization was making a difference. And, you know, uh, one of the challenges that Make-A-Wish has had is that, you know, many people still believe today that it's about child's last wish, and it's not. I mean... It's changed so, so much since, uh, you know, medical services have improved so very much.
0: You know, um, as I ask this, there's a thunderstorm going on right here. So I'm thinking of Thor, but I, (laughs) I, uh, I know that one of the major things that you did was you managed to, again, align this simple and beautiful thing of granting wishes for kids so they could see the possibilities in the future um, with a bunch of people around the world who are doing quite well, including uh, the all the Avengers. So <laughs> you had people from uh, Disney and Marvel who were very supportive, um, yeah. as were many others. Uh, and I know you had that experience previously with Variety, but it was on a massive scale at Make-A-Wish. How did that all come about? And did you find that community of... Uh, of You know, celebrities, for lack of a better word, to be as engaged and interested and committed um, as you did with other work that you've done? Uh,
1: Yes, positively. You know, I have to say that. So, first of all, when you talk about Make-A-Wish, you have to always include Disney because Disney actually is the organization that made all the difference in the world for Make-A-Wish. And and the reason is is because they actually leveraged many of those relationships at the beginning of finding you know uh, the celebrities uh, of getting engaged with us and in even helping with marketing and they've been helping on the board. I remember one of the first things I did when I got to Make a Wish is uh, they had taken us to Disney closed it down and we were uh, gonna watch the world premiere of Pirates of the Caribbean. And um, they gave uh, Make-A-Wish, I think it was a couple million dollars. And they said, you have five minutes with Bob Iger, who was at that point the president and CEO of the organization. And one of the things that I asked Bob for was if we could have a board member. And so, um, and that's what made all the difference for, for Make-A-Wish I believe is, is because once we had one really highly leveraged person from Disney, we were able to get other highly leveraged people. So I had the president of merchandising for Disney on the international board. Uh, matter of fact, Bob Chapek, who's now the, the CEO of Disney was on the uh, Americas board. So, in, you know, Disney was really a big player in helping us. And you know, we, we wouldn't have been able to get into uh, have a Make-A-Wish China if it wasn't for the help that, uh, that Disney provided for us in, in working with their, their legal team and, and, uh, and so forth. I mean, um, they just got, uh, you know, as I've gotten to meet so many of their employees that have been around and stayed in the organization for so many years, it's a fabulous organization. Uh, they have taken care of their people, I believe, and um, they have just been so generous to charities and Make-A-Wish being one of them. But all of those, uh, those stars, you know, the celebrities, it, it came because of the help of Disney, which, by the way, the, the first granted wish was a Disney wish. What was that? Uh, it was to go to, uh, to Disneyland. Disneyland.
0: Well, um, it the seems like it's everybody's time. wish yeah. from, this, yeah. from the from the Bowl on. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, and it must be a difficult time for those kinds of wishes to be granted right now in the middle of COVID.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. So, uh, um, you know, I actually retired from Make-A-Wish just before sort of, uh, COVID hit. I retired in 2019 in August and, uh, you know, a few months later, COVID happened. So I know that they've had their struggles. I've spoken with some of my former colleagues and so forth. And it's been, it's been difficult. Uh, But COVID's changed the world, and it's changed it for all of us. And so we just have to go one step at a time. And we'll, you know, at some point, we'll start to run again. But it's, uh, it's, it's getting to that point.
0: Now, you got to the point where you had, I guess, granted all the wishes that you thought you you could or you wanted to look for other opportunities to grant different kinds of wishes in your career. You retired, as you said, um, and then you moved on, uh, of course, to work with uh, the Cagney Company uh, where you're working today. How did you decide to make that transition and um, what kinds of uh, new challenges, opportunities, and and which fulfillments did you look for in doing that?
1: Well, I, I decided the reason I wanted to retire was to spend more time with family. I've got some grandkids. I've got children. I want to spend a lot more time with them. And so that's what we've actually been able to do. Um, COVID actually has conveniently arranged for that because they happen to be in my bubble and I'm able to spend time with them. Um, but, you know, um, in terms of, of of deciding to come to work for, for Cagney and, and to consult, I just wanted to stay purposeful. And when I spoke with uh, with Penelope, I I'd, I'd worked with her before in terms of uh, hiring her at Make-A-Wish. We'd worked on a few presentations at AFP together and uh, more than a few, actually. And so I thought, well, this would be really a, a, a nice thing if I could uh, stay purposeful and continue to help uh, not-for-profit organizations, but uh, not have to work, uh, you know, 50, 60 hours a week, I could cut back. And so and COVID has helped us all to do that. I mean, I'm, I have a couple of contracts that I'm working on, but, you know, I'm, we're talking about uh, a day a week and uh, maybe. So that's the nice thing about uh, in, you know, what COVID has done for us in terms of helping us to sort of bring us into the now, into being present, into being uh, spending time with what we're, you know, what we're doing as human beings right now, not getting ahead of ourselves, not looking so far to the future, um, or even going back into the past, just being right now.
0: So you talked about spending that time with family and having a chance to connect in those ways. And I know many people have been doing that. How are you finding the opportunity to connect with others as you're helping them to do the work they need to do um, in the middle of all this?
1: Well, connecting with them mostly through Zoom, though I'm really excited that um, you know, now that uh, many of us and have gotten our vaccinations, we feel much more confident about meeting in person. You know, whether it's outside or uh, uh, you know, still six feet apart, at least we we feel confident about meeting. And so I'm excited about that opportunity that's coming my way. As a matter of fact, starting this week, I get to uh, visit with a couple of my um, uh, the clients that I'm working with and some colleagues, so that I can actually meet with them and and reconnect. So it's, we're slowly moving back towards normal. And um, that's what I'm, I'm sort of looking forward to. I don't want all the, the you know, I've spent so much time with, uh, with family. And so I've really quite enjoyed that and I don't want to lose that. Um, and that's why I think that we're going to see that throughout, uh, you, you know, wh- if anything, what we've learned from COVID is that you don't have to work in the office. You can certainly do things um, through technology, and so I, I think that's going to change the way that we do business, the way that we do lots of things, and uh, hopefully, uh, you know, for for more people, um, the ability to have less travel, um, work from home, and uh, and be just as successful.
0: And you use that word normal, which. I'm hearing used by so many people in different ways because some people, as you said, you, know, not necess- you said not necessarily to go back or to look forward, but to be present. And that's a, that's a very critical observation. Do you, do you view the, the new, whatever you wish to call it, normal or otherwise, as being a better version of where we were before all this started? What will the difference be?
1: Well, let me just say, I hope so. Um, I have to say that, you know, I'm, I am a little bit concerned about the polarization that's happened in the United States. But I think that that the normal needs to be that we're spending quality time with each other, really being authentic with each other, uh, having good civil conversations with each other, whether or not we, uh, you know, believe in, in exactly the same things, whether it's politics or religion or anything. And those are difficult discussion points that I I see. But um, yeah, normal needs to be more about being right now and to being authentic.
0: Thank you so much for this, John. Really do appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Jay. Thank you for the opportunity. I I really enjoyed your podcast, and uh, um, I wish you all the success and and continued success in in, in doing this. The Philanthropy Masterminds
0: Podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and you can find blogs, webcasts, and see accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at DonorSearch.net, or check the show notes and descriptions.